Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah in Portland. This is Dimity in Denver. What's shaking over there on the on the on the left coast, Sarah? Oh, it is just a beautiful, beautiful day here. We're having a string of gorgeous fall weather. Except this morning I went running. I added a day of running to my schedule um, because Molly and I weren't going to work out together, so I didn't get access to her gym. And um, so I got dressed, as I always do, just by figuring out what the weather might be without looking at my phone or anything. So I put on the same outfit that I wore on Monday, a pair of shorts and a short sleeve shirt. And then I get out there. I'm like, oh, it's kind of chilly. <laughs> and other people were like, so somebody wearing a hat, somebody wearing a jacket, long sleeve shirts, wow. little air, you know, a little frosty breath coming out of their mouths. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm a little underdressed. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um, because I went out yesterday morning and I I ran with my friend Emily, who barely ever wears shorts. I mean, she's just not a shorts wearer. Mm-hmm. So I mean, even in the middle of the summer, she's wearing like you know capri short ones, but still capris. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she had tights on and a long sleeve shirt, and I had on shorts and a tank, and then a long sleeve shirt over that. And like within you know a third of a mile, we stopped at a stoplight, and I you know, you know, put my, tied my shirt around my waist and she just kept her clothes on the whole time. I'm like, oh my gosh, you must really run yeah. warm, or run yeah. cold. I run warm. I thought this I'm is, running, right? Yeah. I thought that I ran last Friday with Molly and then her 19 year old daughter, Lane, who went to back to college over the weekend. And Lane, who's just, you know, this tiny little stick figure, darling gal, um, she wore a lightweight fleece half zip and a pair of tights the whole time. And I just like, okay, I'd be like in a puddle on the sidewalk if I was wearing a jacket like that. Yeah, yeah no, there's something about being warm. But then I came home um, and changed my shirt. I put on my new found my strong hashtag found my strong shirts because uh-huh. I found it. Well, I'm going to find it on Saturday or Sunday, actually, at my race. But, uh-huh. you know, I'm always one to wear one before you should really wear things. Um, <laughs> you know, I break out the the white shoes before Memorial Day, right? Um, <laughs> You're such a white shoe wearer, Dimity. That's I, I, what people I, always say about you. <laughs> I know. I think like patent white flats, right? All the time. Mary James. That's that's so Dimity. Mary James, yeah. Um, so anyway, so I changed my shirt because as we all know, like if you have a wet sports mm. bra on, that's what makes you cold, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first mm-hmm. layer of like just the chilliness. Yep. Um, and then I rode my bike. I rode bikes to school with Ben. Mm-hmm who was in fourth grade. Um, it's about a three mile ride. Um, and he just, all of a sudden he's like an, an anti-car crusade. Oh. Like I hate being in the car. We're always in the car, but you know, just, oh, kinda, wow. I don't, I don't know what that a little is. Portland ramp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I said, okay. Um, and so he really wanted to ride home, but the problem is, is that I drive a carpool home. Yeah. So I can't, you know, ride my bike home and drive the car. I'm pretty talented, <laughs> but I can't pedal. Um, and That's outside your skill set. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, so I let him ride home by himself. 
Oh. Um, which was kind of big. I mean, we live in a, uh, you know, the, 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 we have the part you got when you guys came out here for the mm-hmm. AMR summit a couple weeks ago, last week, gosh, mm-hmm. it feels like a couple weeks ago. Um, you saw part of the Highline Canal Trail, which was the beautiful, oh, so lovely. kind of thick, wide, I guess thick yeah. is the wrong word, wide gravel path that mm-hmm. is lovely, especially if you're injured and coming back from running and you run by these you know, very small little cottages that go for, you know, $2 million. (laughs) That's a joke. They're really, they're like, Peyton Manning lives back there somewhere. Yeah, that that pretty much says it all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this part of it, it it is on the Highline Trail, but there are a couple crossings, Mm -hmm. um, including some big ones. And, um, and so, I mean, I was like, okay, I think I'm okay with this on the way to school. Um, I said, all right, you need to show me that you will stop at every stoplight or stop mm-hmm. sign mm-hmm. and how you're going to look and you tell me when it's time to go. And I mean, I think, you know, that whole free range parenting, I'm trying to embrace that. I'm, I wasn't really nervous about it until someone said, really, you let him, you're going to let him ride home. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, he knows the way, you know, mm-hmm. and he we'll knows see. my phone number. And I said, what happens if you get a, a flat tire in Bible Park, which is a park, you know, kind of halfway between here and there. He goes, I'd get off and walk home oh. with my bike. And I was like, well, that's, that's it. That's, that's the right. Good. Yeah, that's good, good problem solving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no? So. Well, to, to me, the um, thing would be whether they know the way home. Because I remember the first time Phoebe, who's now in eighth grade, but last year when she was in, she was 12 and in seventh grade, she called me to say that she was walking home from her middle school. And because um, usually we carpool. And I just was like, she's just so bad at direction. I'm like, you know how to walk home from school? I didn't mean it to sound like flip, like, oh, you know how to put one foot in front of the other, do you? Yeah. Uh. And, uh, so she totally took, you know, this way that I would never go because she walked along on the sidewalk of a very busy street, whereas I'd go, you know, like two blocks more and it's nice, you know, pretty houses and quiet, uh, not many cars on it type street. And I was like, okay, all right, now you walk home from school. And, yeah. um, and, but the girl that we carpool with her, um, they're both doing the play, the girl we carpool with is acting in Phoebe is the assistant stage director uh stage manager which she really enjoys that role and um so they have play practice after school and the the other mom was like oh okay well Sarah are you picking them up I'm like nope Phoebe walks home (laughs) and and she's like oh you know can Rachel walk home with Phoebe I'm like yeah sure that's fine like um so you know I guess how far is the walk Mm, about a one and a quarter miles maybe one and a half no one and a quarter it's definitely one but it's it's across there's several big streets and you go over this overpass over a freeway that phoebe insists there is money um paved into the sidewalk over there she's like mom there's just tons of it i just i thought of you when i saw it and now i can't find it again to take a picture of it for you I'm like, like keep looking, I'll, keep looking. I'll, keep, I'll, I'll look for it. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We should say that that uh, when we were together in Denver, that uh, we were going out to a fabulous restaurant, Root Down. Gosh, that was good food and and nice drinks. Um, and so you parked the car, and I hopped out of the passenger seat, and um, there was a penny. Uh, and I was squealed with excitement, and then looked around as Molly has taught me to do, found another one, and. Um, then I was like, oh, I found two pennies. Oh, so excited. And then you're like, well, let's kick the leaves away and see if there's more. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, yeah, because- oh, I know. It was brilliant. <laughs> well, there was, what, a diamond, another penny? Yeah, you found a diamond. Pe- whole sets. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I, I, you know, having known you for the better part of, I don't know, 20 years at this point, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure, but I have never seen you get more excited than when you find money. I mean, that is literally like I've never seen you like you're qualifying for Boston isn't as exciting <laughs> to you, to me, the way your reaction is to it, to like, oh, my gosh. And I found 17 cents on this run and 42 on that run. And I just I mean, it's so funny because it's, I think it's the I think it's the um, it's I think it's the find that oh. matters to you more than the actual money. Oh, my that you just hit the nail on the head there, Dimity McDowell, because it that's the reason, you know, I don't spend the money and and I realize that 13 cents doesn't well, I was going to say what are you going to spend? Oh yeah, <laughs> no. The gumball anymore, no. No, yeah. So, um no, I mean, I have a jar of last year's money, um you know, set high on a shelf in my closet, and I have, you know, this year's kitty um collecting in a little felt um zippered um thing that that Molly made for me for Christmas and then 
then you very generously gave me a little one that is for my purse. So then when I find money, it was a dilemma I had what to do with the money that I find when I'm traveling and can't immediately put into the, you know, the, the receptacles at home. So now I have one and it's, you know, it says small fortune on it. It's a, a little girl in a kind of a retro looking drawing, her leaning over and finding some change on a sidewalk. So. But I yeah. love that you want to share that story. Like, <laughs> me, I'd be like, okay, you found 13 cents, but you're like, and then you kicked the leaves and I found another dime. <laughs> Like, and then, you know, my son, you know, got hit by a car. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm putting that out in the world. He's riding home today. Yeah. No, but, uh, and I want to say you were very generous. You let me have that 11 cents that that you uncovered by kicking the It brings such joy to your life. You can have all my thumbs changed, but I don't look for it. So So it's really more or less. It's a very generous, empty promise. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm good at those. I'm good at those. Oh, my goodness. Well, we have um, quite a show for today um, that that when we hopped onto Skype, we both confessed to each other that we were um, nervous about this interview for the first time ever. And um, just, um, you know, for kind of a variety of reasons, I think people will see once we get into it. Um, so our guest today is Susie Favor Hamilton, who is a three-time Olympian for women's middle distance running, the 1500 and 800 meters. She was a nine-time NCAA champion while running at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which makes her the most decorated NCAA track athlete of all time. Uh, Susie is the mother of a 10-year-old daughter named Kylie, and she is the author of the just-released memoir, Fast Girl, A Life Spent Running from Madness. And um, if her name sounds particularly familiar to, to listeners, it's because you might have seen her on recent interviews, including 2020, Dr. Phil, and Good Morning America. And uh, we're delighted to have Susie join us on this podcast chat. And we met, um, should say that we met Susie a few years ago at a race expo at Disneyland. But before we start chatting with Susie, we are going to take a short break from a sponsor as well as a promo for Chicago Marathon. Susie Favor Hamilton, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. This is an honor. Oh, great, great. So early on in your new memoir, Fast Girl, you talk about some of your earliest memories running in childhood. So can you share with us a sense of what it felt like to be so fast and fluid in your running, even from an early age? It was fun. You know, my, my ghostwriter in the book wanted me to write about this experience as a child. And I really enjoyed writing that chapter um, about how it felt to run so easily. And I, I felt like I was a horse galloping through the nature trails by my house. And the high that I felt was incredible. But more than anything, at that age, I loved running the most I've ever loved it. And I've, I've often thought, how do you keep that feeling all the way into adulthood? And as a competitor, I don't believe you can hmm. Hmm. just because of the competition and so much that is entailed with being a professional athlete um, and not feel nervous. You know, you need to feel nervous. There's so many emotions going on, but the feeling as a child running, there's nothing better when it comes to running. Mm-hmm. Just like, just like kids playing in the backyard and they're running around. Right, right. Or I was thinking about so many things about, you know, how the, you know, as parents, we all think, oh, should we push a little harder to get them to stick with soccer or, you know, stick with gymnastics or whatever it is. And to, you know, hear you say, well, you're not sure you can ever carry that joy of the sport forward. It kind of makes me pause. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's different because I wasn't at that time, I wasn't necessarily I wasn't involved in the sport with coaches. Mm -hmm. It was just me because I know what you mean with coaches today and kids in sports. It's like, wait a minute, they're only 10 years old and Mm -hmm. you're making this already their career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so talking about that pressure that you started to feel and and having coaches come in your life and then sponsors um, and uh in the book, you are very clear that that was a very, very hard position to be in. I mean, it kind of broke my heart when you talked about standing on the starting line of the Olympic Games and just saying, I wish I broke my leg. I wish I didn't have to be here. I mean, yeah. that 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 is um, because, of course, from, from a viewer's standpoint, you're like, oh, my gosh, look at what they did. They reached the pinnacle of their career. They've got everybody watching them. I mean, why why was that so hard for you? 
You know, everything, I, my entire life, since that fifth grade moment, even though I didn't know it at the time, running became my obsession. And the gold medal then later on became the obsession. And with track and field, you know, it's interesting because every four years is when the fans are involved I'm not saying everybody, but outside of the running world is sure. when people get involved. Running running people are always in touch. They're always following the next race. But the whole society, the whole state, the whole country, the whole world is watching that Olympics. And that's when you feel you need to shine. And for me, it was the pressure of so many angles in my life. But I also felt this pressure as a young girl because I was like the darling um, who, you know, won every race. The state um, would brag about me. You know, people, I'd hear people on airplanes saying, oh my gosh, there's Susie. And at such a young age, I felt like I had to be this perfect person and had to be perfect in my parents' eyes. I think that's interesting because you talk, you mentioned state a couple times in that. And I wonder sort of if you were like from a bigger state like Texas or California, whether whether it would have been the same sort of feeling. Like I feel that Wisconsin is the type of state that really would embrace, you know, a, a homegrown hero and, and celebrate you and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and like Texas or something, you guys have so much going, you know, there's so much going on with, you know, the Cowboys and the universities. There's just so much happening that within my state growing up, um, there wasn't that we had the Packers, um, but it, it wasn't like these great big athletes. Everybody knew they adopted me as kind of the hero. And I felt I had to live up to this standard and be the perfect role model. So I think a lot of my journey is maybe fighting that role model mm-hmm. towards the, you know, towards the last three years. Mm-hmm. Are, are, there any, are there any bright spots that you have in your collegiate or professional running career where you look back and be like, wow, that was that just felt good. I felt like myself. I felt like that horse galloping or was it was it pretty much from the get-go tough the the major competitions the NCAAs um, were enormous pressure you would think I would be more confident about that I had won so many races and running these fast times that I would go in with not a care in the world but I was so nervous at the possibility of losing because I never lost so here I am already focusing on the negative and not thinking about the positive, like I get to be in this race, I might win another championships, it's not the end of the world if I lose, but I didn't have those thoughts. I, I only thought I had to win and I remember getting those big, you know, those big packs of gum, like juicy fruit, not the little packs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the like but, 17 sticks. Uh-huh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I would chew that whole pack like two hours before a race. Oh my gosh. Just with nerves. And here I am like putting all this sugar in my body at the worst time you could, but it seemed to like that would help my nerves. And I look back on that. Thank goodness I didn't get too many cavities. (laughs) (laughs) And now you probably like, like vomit a little in your mouth when you look at a pack of juicy fruit. (laughs) Exactly. No, I always think of that too. When I do look at the juicy fruit, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, I'm just curious, and then this is kind of a hypothetical, it is a hypothetical question. I mean, what would, do you think it would have been useful for you if you would have come in, say, fourth at an NCAA championship or even second and just saw that, hey, they still love you and the world still is going to revolve, you know? I think, you know, in hindsight, I think maybe that would have helped. I think what really would have helped make a difference is if somebody came up to me and said, um, you know, my coach or parents or somebody said, you know, it's okay if you lose or even had a sports psychologist help me to figure out these issues. Um, but the the thing is, I don't know how willing I would have been to open up at that sure. time because you didn't, you didn't open up to your weaknesses because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise I would have talked to my coach, but he kind of, he coached us to be um, and I say it in the book to that we were not sissy runners. We were capable of anything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, that stoic, 
um, you can do this, nobody's going to get in my way. And he was from East Germany. He had that personality that don't show your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great coach, though. Oh, my God, just an amazing coach. And he gave me the success that I had. Oh, sure. Yeah, helped helped hone you to be the great runner that, that you were and, and are. Right. Um, so, so looking back, what do you see as the major red flags as signs of depression and bipolar disorder? Um, looking back, I see mental illness signs with the eating disorder. Um, I think anybody with an eating disorder has some, some form of mental illness and that that has to be addressed and instead of ignored or looked upon as, oh, they're training so hard, they're burning every calorie. Um, you know, I, I believe that that is a first sign for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then for me, just the anxiety, you know, like, also talk about this um, compelling story in the book where I'm running in my sleep and I'm actually sleep, I call it sleep running, mm-hmm. um, where I'm having this anxiety attack when I'm babysitting and I leave, I leave the house. Yeah. Um, so yeah. there's that, that was a huge sign something's wrong. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that's that scene was. I was like, wait, is she dreaming this or is this really happening? It's like, oh my gosh, like the 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 power of the of the mind to to make you literally move and and you know head for home and and right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was it was the night before. Just just to so people in case people haven't read it, it was a night before yeah. a big meet, right? And you were babysitting. You fell asleep on the couch. Yes, dreamt about running and ran, but truly ran home. And I dreamt dreamt about the anxiety that I had this race in my hometown, and my father was running this huge regional meet. All these people from all different states were here, and here I am babysitting, and they're not home at ten like they said. So I'm not going to get the amount of sleep that I need in order to win. So that means I'm not going to win the race. Wow. So these these mind games I conjured up, you know, it was all myself doing that all these things came about, you know, and again, having today we talk about we have sports psychologists, we're doing more to help athletes with their minds, which is awesome, which is really great. But yeah, but you would you wouldn't talk about being anxious before a race in the eighties. No, 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 ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and so then your um, your depression um, intensified after you had Kylie, um, and postpartum comes up a lot among our crowd, the mother runner crowd, simply because of the fact that it's it's you know more prevalent than people want to talk about, and you know right. your body has just have been taken for such a ride that you don't even know what's going on half the time. I mean, could you, did you kind of talk to you about us about your depression, your postpartum depression and how that kind of led from one thing to another? You know, after Kylie was born, it happened pretty quickly that things just weren't feeling right. And I remember going to the doctor with Kylie for her checkups and um, telling the doctor, yeah, I just, I don't feel right. And she said, well, a lot of moms have postpartum and, you know, this is normal. But even when she said that, I didn't feel I had postpartum and I really didn't know much about postpartum. I thought it's just when you don't want to be with your baby or you want to harm your baby because I was the opposite. And I just felt like something was wrong here. Um, But I didn't do much. I just kind of went with it. And then for two years, I really struggled to the point where I got um, serious about taking my life. And that was the first sign that, um, my husband noticed that I really needed to do something and get some medical help. So that's, I did. I immediately got medical help the next day after I thought about uh, driving my car off the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a, that was a powerful scene in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how did, how did this, my, I hope this doesn't sound flip, but how, how did running change for you after becoming a mother? Oh, you know, it became so um, insignificant. I felt like everything I'd done up up to that point in my life was so focused on running. And then I have my baby girl, and I'm like, "This is what life is about. This is this is a great life having a child. I don't want to miss any moments of her of her life." So the running really 
it's almost like a switch turned off and I'm like, I don't, I don't need that anymore. I don't need that competition. I still loved to run, but I didn't want to do the competition anymore. And, and what involved to, you know, to be a professional runner, it involves pretty much 24 hours a day, eat, sleep, train, eat, sleep, train, take naps. And here you're taking care of a newborn. You know, it's, it just, you keep, I found it extremely hard to do both. And I admire women that can do that. I mean, it's amazing. Did you run much after you had Kylie? I mean, I remember one scene where Mark was like, you really need to go for a run, Mark, your husband. I mean, yes. did you use that as an outlet or was that, because I know you were also scared to kind of leave Kylie. I was struggling with having to run. I, I think because of the depression that they thought I had, I, I didn't have the energy or the desire to exercise. And so I, would, I was doing a lot of walking, but running was, it was difficult to get myself out of the house to even attempt to do that. So I understand, you know how they say exercise is so good for depression. It's great for bipolar. Um, but it's when you're depressed, how do you get out there and do it? Yeah, no, that's, definitely. that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. It's motivating to go. Absolutely. Getting, getting some momentum going the other direction, right? Yeah. You definitely need help in that area. So for me, I was starting to really spiral. Hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is there, it sounds like somebody's raking. It is this bird oh my God. outside. <laughs> that is... And I could see if I could like slam a book. <laughs> I'm away. I met my parents-in-law in Malibu, oh and, my the, and the doors are shut. But oh I was hearing that too. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's so funny because we had a guest on of um, about a month or two ago, and it's she had her window open, and it sounded like there were all these birds like like twittering around her head, and it was just that they're outside. So I think that's a AMR hallmark <laughs> to have birds. So okay, no, we thought if it was like you know Mark was raking, we'd ask him to take a break or take a little lunch yeah. break. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no way here. Yeah. Let me let me hear if you stop. Oh yeah, he seems okay. To, yeah, very stop. good, very good, very good. Or she? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so Susie, um, we've met you at a few uh, run Disney race expos, and you yes. know you just appeared. Fun. Yeah, yeah, and you just appeared to be the literal golden girl. You know, with your blonde hair, and you seem so energetic and upbeat. But then, you know, in reading your book, we realized how hard that you must have been working to project that facade or, or was it exactly. the, or, or was it the bipolar disorder, like feeding the frenzy? I mean, talk to us about that. It was. So a lot of, most of the time you saw me manic mm -hmm. and, um, again, here I am bipolar during all this time, not knowing and I was then given the drug Zoloft. So when I started doing, um, Disney, I was on Zoloft and that was just feeding my mania and making it worse. And on top of that, that's where the hypersexuality started was as soon as I started on that drug, I changed and I changed very quickly. I had no inhibitions. You know, when I was jumping around on stage or doing something for Disney or rock and roll, I remember thinking, what is wrong with these people? Why, why don't they have this energy like I do? Mm -hmm. You know, why don't they just get up? Come on, people. Obviously, some, <laughs> some people did, but they weren't in that manic moment yeah. where, where you're feeling this intense high. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's I'm, quite interesting. Yeah, it was. I remember, you know, here we, we would speak on the stage at different times and then we'd see you and it's like, okay, yeah, Susie has a little bit more energy than we do. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. And even like... <laughs> What were you guys doing? I was just standing at the, we I mean, just, you know, having been at the expo all day, you know, we spoke, say, at like four o'clock or something. So we'd been there since eight, you know, and we're like, okay, Diet Coke, Diet Coke, maybe a little bit of chocolate to get us like pumped up. And then we look over at you and you're like, you know, leading an aerobics class, basically. And it was, right. I mean, you know, and, and people fed into the energy because it is, you do bring, you know, you do, you did it with smile, you did it with the energy, but it was, it was a little hard to be like, wow, how can she do that? You know? Right. Where does this come from? But it, it's yeah. this enormous amount of energy is one of the signs of bipolar. Um, endless energy, sleepless nights, um, excessive spending, um, hypersexuality, um, mood swings, 
all these things are signs in bipolar. Um, you, the mood swings are the highs and the, and the incredible lows. So I was showing these signs, but didn't know anything about bipolar, even though I had lost my brother, he died by suicide and he was bipolar. Um, didn't know signs because it wasn't talked about in my family. Do you, do you feel like your parents knew what was going on with your brother? Do you think that they knew that he was bipolar? Absolutely. They knew. They tried to shelter me from his behavior, and they they got him treatment. They got him shock treatment, and he was taking lithium. But even back then, it was so misunderstood, and the drugs weren't, you know, lithium is a very powerful drug, and who knows what dose he was taking but he changed. He changed dramatically when he started drugs and treatment. It was like a part of my brother had disappeared. He was almost in this daze so much of the time. And I know, I know that firsthand when I was when they're trying to get the right dose of my medication for me, you do feel dazed. You feel like you're not even present. And it's hard, like, do I want to live this life on this medication? So it's tinkering with your medication to find the right level or stability that you can deal with in your life. That's the hardest part is being more stable. I don't really like it, even sure. though it's healthy. Do you, do you feel like you're yourself now or do you feel like you're still kind of looking in from the outside? Looking in from the outside, yeah, because yeah. I question what's me. Um, sure. I know the manic me that's not a healthy me. But if I'm not manic, um, it's, I know being manic is dangerous, risky, it hurts the people around you. So I know being where I am now is better for everybody around me. But yet at the same time, it's harder for me. It's hard to inhabit that body and that mind. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. 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 That, that mind is so that's why, like, every day now I have to exercise. Um, yesterday I didn't exercise, and it's like it's still weighing on my mind that I didn't get that workout in. Sure. Where, where because, most people can just brush it off. Yeah. Well, so what does exercise do for you now? It, it makes me feel more level, even mm -hmm. though the the drugs I feel like they're supposed to stabilize me, which I said they do, but I feel like stabilizing me is bringing me lower than, you know, if I exercise, then I feel like I'm up a little bit than the level. And I don't want to be level. I want to be up. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that for sure. Well, so, um, so talking about that energy, I mean, so on the 2020 interview we, um, we watched recently, you talked about running a half marathon in St. Louis and then flying to Las Vegas and yes. having five clients that same day. I mean, right. forget shocking. It just sounds exhausting. It, you know, it seemed normal. It really seemed normal. I mean, yes. were you ever like, did you just stay up all night long? Was there ever a point where you just felt so worn down you wanted to pull the covers over your head or did that not happen as long as you were taking the Zoloft? It would happen to me when I would go back to Wisconsin. So environment played a big role in my manic state. If I could be in Vegas and continue this high, I was, I was good. But I would always come down when I would leave there because I had everything I needed in Vegas to fuel me and fuel my mind. So, you know, towards the end of my Vegas, I just wanted to move there. This would maintain this feeling I had. And bipolar comes across as such a self, selfish, um, you come across as a selfish person when all you're doing is trying to feed the mania to feel good, just like an alcoholic is having that another drink just to feel good and numb the pain around um, if I was manic, everything kind of went away in my world and I was euphoric. So I, I do describe myself in Vegas as being numb a lot, just kind of numb. Yeah. Either. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. So, um, so tell us about writing the book then. So how long did it take and how hard was it for you to drill it down into, into Kelly, your escort alter ego? When my story came out, it was amazing how many vultures were out there that jumped on my bandwagon and were trying to 
um, have me write a book, do a, a reality show on my mm. Vegas, oh, and go wow. to go and do porn at Vivid. Mm. Um, all these people, and here I am in such a crazy, um, delusional state of mind that you know, if I didn't have loved ones guiding me, I could have easily gone that route of vivid, you know, my, my life would be over with. So mm -hmm. hypersexual, why not just go into porn? Right. You know, that would solve everything and I'd have my family there, but thank goodness I had loved ones to protect me and stick by me. So that, that really was important. Mm -hmm. but and so what point did you decide you wanted to tell the story from your point of view? I, the, the healthy me decided to start telling it, um, basically two years, a little over two years ago because the book took two years to write. So I still wasn't close to being healthy when I first originally started, because I remember I knew a lot about the clients and I was telling my writer, uh, you know, everything about the clients. I wasn't getting into the issues that got me there. So if that book would have been written, it would have been a sex book. It would have been an awful book. Mm -hmm. But that's still where my frame of mind was. So over over the process of writing it, my writer, an amazing person, Sarah Tomlinson, she had to deal with this bipolar person who she couldn't get the information she was trying to get for the book. And it only happened in the last six month six months of writing the book where I started to tell my story. And she's a fast writer. She's written bestsellers in, she wrote, she wrote a bestseller in six weeks. Yeah. So wow. she was, yeah, amazing. So for her, the two years was, that was long to get a story from me, but she was patient. And with that last six months, I started to open up and be able to articulate my feelings and maybe how this really happened but you, it took a while. It seems like you have a, a, a good perspective on something that didn't, it wasn't all that long ago that this was happening. And, and how do you think you were able to get to that place where you were able to fill in the, the whys and the hows rather than just the you know details of the escorts and how it is you can have the perspective that you have as you're talking to us, talking to Dr. Phil, you know, on Good oh, Dr. America. Phil, let's not even talk about him because he is like unbelievable in just hurting people. Here he is a doctor and he twists things around. He, um, I didn't even want to do his interview. The publisher wanted to him to do, wanted me to do it because it sells books yeah. and obviously it's a business. So, um, but he didn't even read my book and he was all over the place. And the studio person, before I even in, went into the interview, they already had a preset agenda because um, I went into the the green room with Mark and she comes in. She says, I just wanted you to know ahead of time that you may come out of this upset and not happy with the show that we've done. But trust me, we put it together that you'll be happy in the end. That should have been the clue to get the hell out of there and sure. not do this show. But yeah. again, it was we didn't really have a choice on the matter. Right, right. Well, sorry you went through that, you know, and, and yeah, you said oh some God. hurtful things and, and that, I mean. Um, he was he was a big trigger during that time, which wasn't, which was really recent. He caused me a ton of pain. And here he is trying to be the doctor to save the day. And he knows nothing about my story. It's all about, you know, making him look good. Yet yeah. he can hurt people in the process to make him own his own self um, look good and judge. And it just, it was an awful, awful experience. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. What did it hurt? Did hurt? I mean, and to hurt you on such a public stage after you've obviously like put yourself out in this very vulnerable place, you know, it's, that's not, that's not okay. It, it's not okay. And, you know, trying to hurt people's lives to make yourself look good is, is just wrong, wrong. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, just as bad as the smoking gun who busted me, um, you know, he, his job is ruining people's lives. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, thank God he saved my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can also see the other end where his job is to ruin lives. 
Right. I mean, because I, if you hadn't have the safety net of Mark and your parents and and friends, that that it could this story could have ended in a completely different way. Completely, I would have. I could be dead, or mm-hmm. I would, you know, take a different route. Mm-hmm. But back to your other question about what helped me during that time to get move on in a positive direction. It was Mark who stood by me, and he even told his parents in his parents when this happened. He said. I just want you to do one thing for me in my life. All I'm asking is that you support Susie right now as much as you don't even understand what has happened and how crazy this is. I just ask for your support. So right there, I'm getting support. And my father-in-law was incredible, um, just talking to me a lot. And Mark was a a big reason why the shame left me because that stayed with me a long time. Mm -hmm. And I realized that shame can kill people Mm -hmm. and it almost took my life. So big advocate for people letting go of that shame and coming to peace with themselves. Mm -hmm. And then just the right, I mean, I had the best doctors, incredible doctors, incredible psychologists who put me on the right meds And my husband now has moved our family out to California so I could be out of the fishbowl and in a healthy environment where I can exercise and thrive and have the sunshine and the ocean. I'm I'm so fortunate. And not everybody has this opportunity. And so many people are left undiagnosed to even get help. And I I think, you know, one of the reasons in writing the book is that people who read it could maybe relate on certain levels and maybe take a look at them own, their own self and say, you know what, I, I need a little help. I'm going to reach out and not be afraid to get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, and so, I mean, um, Dr. Phil, notwithstanding, I mean, how, how have you been the past couple of weeks? Because I just feel like you know, I mean, yes, it's one thing to um, to write the book, but then to go on tour for it and have every little part of it, you know, just, you know, um, dissected and your life dissected and, you know, Kylie and Mark in front of the camera. I mean, has that been helpful, exhausting, cathartic, a combination of that stuff? What? How's it well, it was, it was so hard to write the book and there were so many moments I didn't want to write it. But I have to say, um, the interview that I did with 2020, um, Elizabeth Vargas, who did that, and the whole crew, um, they spent enormous amount of time. We did three locations. We did Wisconsin for a week. We did Vegas for three days. And we did um, California for, um, did I say California? Yeah. And we did all three locations. So they really got to know us. And Elizabeth, maybe coming into my story, was maybe a little skeptical, like anybody would be. And towards the end, she was a huge advocate for us. And she actually gave us therapy in the process of doing 2020. And especially for Mark, he, he broke down and he broke down a lot. You don't see it so much in the interview. You see it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he cries at one time, yeah. Yeah, but he really broke down when it when she talked about Kylie and when my daughter Kylie and then when he talked when she talked about my race in Sydney where I fell mm. and and I fell on purpose. He started he was crying during that. Something he hadn't done for 15 years. He never he he had invested so much in that race that he held that all in for 15 years. And for him to cry during that interview um, was one of the best things that's happened out of all of this is that he was able to let go of that. I couldn't imagine him having to carry that his whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because he's, well, I remember when he's, he said that he was worried that you were hurt and that it sounded like he just wanted to rush from wherever he was spectating down to help you and, and to think that, you know, there were how many, you know, 120,000 people in his way that he couldn't get to you. Yeah. And just, I was in the medical area after Sydney for two hours in a state of like closing my eyes and panic attack. And I told Mark when I was writing the book, I'm like, I was there for 20 minutes. Right. Mm. And he said, you were, you were there for two hours. They couldn't get you to open your eyes. And 
isn't that amazing? I had no idea. So if I was writing, I would have said 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were things in my book after it was written that Mark had to go back and do corrections on. He's like, no, you, this is, you don't have this right. That timeline, timeline is wrong. Um, so there was a lot of memory loss Mm. on my end. So, Mm. so who could, I mean, I can't even imagine the things that I did that I don't remember. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so, um, on a slightly lighter topic that's in the book, you, um, you talk about trying yoga with a friend while you were bipolar, but that you couldn't sit still for the poses, couldn't calm your mind. And yet now you teach yoga. So tell us about that transformation. It pretty much right after I was outed, um, maybe it was like a month after into my recovery, one of my girlfriends in Malibu reached out and she, we met for for coffee and then she had encouraged that I come try one of her yoga classes at Yoga Works in California. And I did and the first class I couldn't understand. I was kind of like wondering, what is the big deal about it? I don't get it. <laughs> You know, I wasn't into it. I wasn't even open to really trying to understand, but I continued to go and I started going by myself. And then every time I went, I got something out of it. And then I started to learn the poses and get the high from doing these poses, especially the energy ones where you're upside down. And then it became an obsession of how good it made me feel and my body getting toned that because I got really skinny in Vegas, but I call it skinny fat, Mm -hmm. meaning that there's no muscle, you're just skinny, Mm -hmm. and you've lost all your muscle. So I was getting muscle back and I was feeling healthier. And I was crying in class during Shavasana, which is the very end of the class, I was crying. And it was like, this pain was starting to slowly leave me through yoga, even though I was doing therapy. But it, it was an incredible experience, and I knew I had to continue this. And I like the fact that there was, you never perfected it. You never had to be perfect in yoga. Mm-hmm. There's no ranking, right? There's, <laughs> there's no, no ranking, there's no timing, there's no nothing. <laughs> yeah, that, I like the ranking. Yeah. <laughs> and I was not, and I'm not, I'm still, my balance is awful because of, um, my running, how it's kind of ruined my arches and my balance. So I'm definitely not, you know, I wouldn't call myself as a great yogi, um, but I love it. And I'm okay with that, you know, not being the best at it. I actually liked that I was far from being the best in the class. Yeah, nice. There's not that pressure then to, to strive and, and get to be number one or number two. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you can hold headstand for the longest, I bet. I bet you can take that on in the class, right? I try to do that. Yeah. Uh, one, one quick question. When you mentioned the um, skinny fat in Vegas, were you, and I had wondered this while, as a runner, I was wondering this while I was reading Fast Girl. Um, when you'd be in Vegas, you were not running or you would run? I was still running. I was running really slow. I'd go on the treadmill Mm -hmm. and being hypersexual, all I thought about was sex. So on the treadmill, when I'm running, I'm wearing the shortest shorts possible where it looks like I'm in underwear practically. Mm -hmm. And I would almost do this in just a sexual way to maybe get attention. But all I could think about was sex and Um, I would just run really slow. Sometimes I'd go fast um, if I wanted to kind of intensify my high. But I didn't have to exercise every day because of the escorting. Um, The high was already there. I have to ask then, did you ever, um, I assume you were a treadmill in in the hotel gym. I mean, did you ever pick up clients in the gym? The client, there were people that picked me up all the time, everywhere I went. And, you know, I was a little surprised. I thought, you know, this world is so different. Um, but in looking back, it was the way I carried myself mm-hmm. that I was getting picked up all the time, the way I dressed, the way I looked. And I didn't see it that way at the time. 
I just thought, oh, people are so friendly, but it was, it was me. There's the Midwestern nugget of Susie right there. Everybody's so nice. Exactly. But, but it wasn't, it was me who was giving off the vibe. I mean, Mm -hmm. everywhere I went, if I was on the airplane to, to the bars, to the restaurants, to the gym, working out, Mm -hmm. um, I was throwing that out, but I never picked up a client at a work working out in a gym, but in my sexual exploration, it happened in the beginning at bars, which was incredibly dangerous. You know how they say about people, you know, people pick up at, you know, do hookups every day at bars. That's no, no strange thing. But when I got into the escorting world, at least my clients were being screened. Um, so it actually became safer being an escort than just picking up people in bars um is you know that sounds crazy but still escorting is not safe in that somebody can just lose it mm-hmm. at any moment mm-hmm. i mean that's one thing that you know just having met you a couple times and then just knowing you're a small person and i just i feared for you a lot i was like gosh she's in these really i mean and i then again that's the mania right you put yourself right. you jump out of airplanes you put yourself in these positions with these unknown, really strong men in hotel rooms and nobody knows where you are, but that feels like the the right thing to do, right? Absolutely. No, you have it perfect. And the riskier, another thing of bipolar, the dangerous side is that the mania leads you to riskier behavior. Um, I mean, it would be great to be manic and keep that going if you didn't get the risky behavior, because that's ultimately when you're going to hurt yourself, others, or kill yourself, being manic is starting to do crazy things. And for me, crazy things were really starting to happen and sex in crazy places and starting to get, you know, really liking drugs. It's just you're going down a really dangerous path. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, obviously mental illness wreaks its havoc in the lives of so many people and women you know, what message are you hoping that your book can have for women struggling with their own disease or perhaps that of a loved one? I think, you know, women at least have a good way of expressing themselves to their girlfriends where men may not be as good at doing that. But I think with women, we talk to our friends, you know, maybe, maybe there's a friend you can trust that you can open up to. Um, if you're having a hard time, wanting to go to a doctor, I think talk to your friends and, and maybe they will also help to encourage you to go to a doctor or don't be afraid to reach out for help. And we have to get rid of the stigma. Um, mental illness is a disease. It's like cancer. And until society starts looking at, looking at this illness as a disease, there's always going to be that stigma and it's going to be harder for people to reach out to get help. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I did the book is for that. So people who are silently suffering that feel like they can't go to anybody will reach out because there is enormous help out there. You just have to look for it. And gosh, it's so hard in a depressed, a depressed state to yeah. want to even reach out. So it's like it's this cycle. More than anything, I think the loved ones around you have to look for signs. It's mental illness is not the one person suffering. It's a family. If somebody with mental illness has it, you know, it's the entire family that is suffering. Um, But they have to reach out and help these people or uh, family members have to reach out. We just have to be more compassionate about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so, um, being a yoga instructor, living in California, all those things. I mean, um, what do you envision the next chapter of your life entailing, Susie? Um, well, right now, I'm definitely I'm not into I'm not doing the yoga training until things settle down because I've just been clients getting men who want to sleep with me. Oh. So, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't so, laugh, but I mean, probably, I'm glad, no, you, I'm so glad you're aware of that. It is pretty funny. Yeah. So that is happening. So I'm taking a, a little, you know, I'm waiting till things quiet down and, um, 
just want to make sure when I do start personal training that it's for the reasons, the right reasons um, that are going to keep me on a healthy path. Um, but what was the second part of your question? Oh, oh, it was just, you know, you know, what, what, where do you see your life taking you now that now that the these painful episodes are behind you and that you seem to have brought a clarity to the situation? I mean, wh- wh- what do you see? You know, right. I see myself as being a fantastic mom who's there for her daughter to pick her up and take her to school and um, be there when she's doing her homework and um, being a wife who you know, enjoys being at home and really thrives on when it's cooking dinner time or watching TV together as a family or going hiking or swimming in the ocean. This is stuff that it's so important to me and I really love doing and I lost sight of all of that. But I have to say, um, I think with my medication, I look at only that day at a time. I'm not thinking about tomorrow which is, you know, people are always like, well, what are you doing tomorrow? What interviews or what do you have? I'm like, I honestly don't know because I'm just focusing on today. My brain can only handle today. Um, so I, I have a lot of people helping me and reminding me uh, right now with all these interviews, uh, my publicist is constantly updating me and making sure to don't forget to do that. And then Mark, she's talked to Mark to make sure Mark is also monitoring me and monitoring that um, the interviews are going good because I've had two that didn't go so well and that one of them was awful. I mean, just awful. The guy was a bully. And it was from my own state of Wisconsin, just a complete bully. He had his agenda set before it started. I think the, I think the lesson learned is only let women interview you, Susie, because, exactly. you know, it, it, this is, you know, we, we, we've been super nice and enjoyed this and, you know, Elizabeth Vargas. And so, you know, yeah. um, the, the, tell, tell your publicist that. So, <laughs> yes, no, I did. I did suggest that too. I said, I'm, I'm no good things happen when I work with women on these interviews. But again, selling the book, you have to do a lot of sports radio mm, yeah. and, and the jock radio. And, you know, they want to talk about the sex and, and that's okay because I get that. And it, it is, you know, what's promoting their radio. Mm-hmm. And I'm just honest about, I don't have anything to hide um, mm-hmm. about it all. And I always throw in, you know, the behavior that I had was a different person. That was a persona I created. And it was so easy for her to do everything she did, where me, I could never have done those things. As a healthy person, mm-hmm. I couldn't have done those. So I think creating this alter ego just made it so easy and so completely normal in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, gosh, thank you, Susie, so much for your time, your honesty, your inspiring words. I mean, you know, I know uh, that uh, going back to the 2021 where you said that this is more important than winning an Olympic gold medal. And I mm. 100% believe that, um, that you are going to do so much good by spreading the word and taking the cover off of, you know, what could have easily sent you scurrying down the rabbit hole forever. So really, yeah. really nice job. Thank you. Yeah, that statement from 2020, just I was bawling when um, when she said that I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And the credibility that came from that was incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but thank you guys so much. And um, I know I'll see you down the road at a race. I still want to do some 5Ks and uh, 10Ks. So I'm sure we'll run into each other. Oh, good. Well, I just I just won't be dancing on stage anymore. <laughs> well, then we'll be a little less intimidated to come up to you. So, you know, exactly. put, put on a few more gonna... clothes and stop being so high energy and we'll just w- walk right up to you and give you a big hug. So, right, right, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, continued success with your recovery, Susie. Thank you so much. You Thanks. guys are awesome. Thanks, Thanks again. T- take care. Take care. Bye bye. Wow. Well, that, that, um, that kind of blew me away, to be honest. I'm not even sure how to sum that one up other Mm -hmm. than I have so much respect for her and it is so easy to judge her from the outside. And then Mm -hmm. you talk to her and you're like, wow, I, you know, like she said, like Elizabeth Vargas became one of her champions. I could, I, I'm her champion now. Mm -hmm. I mean, and not that I wasn't before, but reading the book is, it's an intense, intense book and it's hard to rectify that, that mania and that, that Kelly 
escort that she became with like leaving her young daughter mm, and yeah. her husband who, you know, just worships her mm-hmm. at home, you know, yeah. and that's what I kept going back to was Mark and Kylie. But now, in fact, I mean, hearing it from hearing her side, you're like, oh, I, I get it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just keep coming back to the word clarity. I'm just so impressed with the the lens that she can observe and see what the behavior was, how she what fueled it, how she can change things. I mean, it, it takes um, a lot of strength and courage to do what she's doing. And I have to say, like, even, you know, just saying like right now, like, I don't want to be, you know, balanced or level or whatever. I mean, she's, you know, she's going to struggle every day for the rest of her life. And and not like that. I want that to happen, but that's just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that she's got such insight into that and, and how much exercise. I mean, I know on her Twitter po- profile, she wrote, I need with, you know, capital letters need to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that speaks to, you know, maybe obviously that's that's um, an extreme case, but it speaks to just the power of exercise and how it does take you away from that just like level to positive. Like, hey, I could handle this day, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. you when you have that mindset. Right, right, right. Well, well I, I feel very honored that Susie spoke with us and shared her story with us. So too oh, yeah me too yeah. well um well let's uh let's head over to the challenge corner yeah um and sarah this is a long one and i see you bolded and then unbolded so should we take turns reading I sure that's oh that's oh that's a good idea yes perfect yes <laughs> um, i'll have I'll, I'll let you start dim okay um this is from amanda do we know amanda's last name i did at one point but i didn't include it okay <laughs> amanda you're in the r- half marathon run race group and you'll identify yourself quickly because I think you're probably the only one in school right now learning to be a certified nurse midwife. Anyway, so here's what Amanda says. I am in the middle of a wild adventure. I signed up for the challenge in a semester in a summer lull as I was anxiously awaiting the start of a very tough graduate school semester. Actually, it is the first of my final two semesters and undoubtedly the hardest climb on the road to becoming a certified nurse midwife. There is no way I would be okay right now if I wasn't doing the challenge. With four weeks to go before my race, I have worked harder on running than I ever have in my life, and it has been incredibly satisfying. I was worried that it would be too much, but in the end, it has been my saving grace. It has given me the mental clarity and the physical stamina to cope with an intense schedule of studying and writing, long hours in the hospital doing clinical work, plus my regular job and caring for my family. And she says, if you're wondering where the sacrifice comes in, well, I won't lie. Over the past four weeks since the semester started, my sleep has taken a big hit, and I am freaking tired. I can tell the difference in my running from when I started the challenge. Of course, I'm telling myself I'm cumulatively so much stronger than when I started, which is true, and I'm happy to say I'm not injured. Nevertheless, the tiredness is kicking in, and I'm not sure I'm going to make either my, quote, secret or my stated time goals for the race. Regardless, I'm full of intense gratitude and confidence for from having decided to race in the context of completing my lifelong goal of finishing this program. You all have helped me a lot, especially last week when I had to take the runs to the 4 a.m. time slot. Holy cow. And I needed to to know you were out there too. It's an amazing gift to be running and to be doing graduate work in one's 40s with kids in tow. I waste no time on bull blank. I have my days of overwhelm, but running keeps it from getting out of control. I realize I am not obsessed with perfection in the way I was in rounds one, two of, one and two of my education in my early and mid-20s. When I'm with my kids or spouse, I'm more present. When I'm at work, I'm there. When I'm studying at the coffee shop in a precious window of time on a Tuesday afternoon, I know what a privilege it is. And when I'm running alone or with one of my best running friends, I am, for the most part, damn happy to be doing it. Last week, for the first time, a wriggling, wet, warm little newborn got herself born into my hands. That is so cool. I know my running helped me have the focus I needed to catch her. Every training cycle, every year has had a story, but this one is taking the finding my strong to heights I seriously never imagined possible. I am so appreciative. Okay, I think I'm just going to have to go, like, uh, retire to my bed with a box of Kleenex for the next hour and, like, cry over this, cry over Susie. I mean, you know, I just – God, I mean, the power of running, Sarah. I mean, that is – it is just – it is unbelievable. I mean, just two different, very different stories, but they both attest to Mm -hmm. what a strong, ridiculously – 
awesome drug it is, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also the the support and community, you know, about Susie talking about her family and, and some other loved ones. And then, you know, Amanda talking about her BRFs and just, and, and feeling also a part of the community on Strava. I just, um, you know, those two combined community and running. That's what it's oh. all about. Yeah. Yeah. Community so- plus running equals what? <laughs> Another mother Ecstasy, utopia, <laughs> nirvana. Yeah. So, um, so the song that we chose is, um, and it applies to Amanda as well as Susie Favor Hamilton. It's "Invincible" by Kelly Clarkson. Okay, I think I've worn. I think I've worn down all my emotional receptors. Yeah. <laughs> <You> need- <laughs> I think I'm done. I got to sign off, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need to. You need to go pick up your kids and. Um, and to the people listening, you know, we'd appreciate if you'd head over to our Facebook page, which is Run Like a Mother, the book, and like it. Um, if you want more of this type of stuff, our website is anothermotherrunner.com. Our store site, if you want to tap into that community with maybe a t-shirt or a hat, is motherrunnerstore.com. Or you can get stuff from us in person um, next weekend. I am going to be at Chicago Marathon. Dimity, you are going to be at Hartford Marathon. Then a few weeks after that, you're going to be at Zuma Colorado Springs at the lovely Broadmoor. Yes. Uh, a couple weeks after that, you're going to be at another Zuma race in Nashville, the debut Nashville Zuma. And uh, there we have a party there. Um, We're having a party in Nashville. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, um, and then I will be at uh, Rock and Roll San Antonio. So um, I should have said that with some twang. <laughs> can, can, can you give me a little twang in the background there, producer Alex? Having <laughs> a party in Nashville in the back of my truck. <laughs> so, um, so whether you have a twang with it or not, many happy miles <laughs> to you. <laughs> I do a bad twang, by the way. 